This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge. And I'm wondering this week how many of you are fans of the TV series Succession? For those who don't know it, Succession tells the story of a wealthy family media empire. And the notable thing about it is that every single character in it is utterly hideous from a moral perspective. And some people have a problem with this. They'll say they don't like Succession because they can't identify with any of the characters. Personally, I love the series. I believe that the villain is usually the most interesting and charismatic figure in any story. And so a story that's exclusively populated with villains is always going to ring my bell. But does that attraction to morally reprehensible fictional characters mean that I have lost my appreciation for moral beauty? Today, we're exploring the proposition that moral virtues are beautiful while moral vices are ugly, and that if a person has a morally good character, then that makes them a beautiful person, while a morally bad person is an ugly person. It's known as the moral beauty view. It goes back at least as far as ancient Greece. But today's guest believes that in the modern world, we've lost sight of the connection between moral goodness and beauty, and he would like to resurrect it. His name is Panos Paris. He's a lecturer in the School of English Communication and Philosophy at Cardiff University in Wales. And he believes that today, as a culture, we have such an intense preoccupation with physical beauty that our appreciation for moral beauty has become somewhat atrophied. But then we also have this familiar moral discourse in the world of the arts and the question of how we should square our aesthetic appreciation of a work of art with the knowledge that its creator may be morally reprehensible or that the artwork itself expresses morally ugly values. And then, of course, there are all those horrible but somehow incorrigibly attractive characters that turn up in various forms of fiction. There's also architecture and the question of whether something like a building can be morally beautiful or morally ugly. Well, it's all very complicated, and Panos Paris is unpicking it for us today in conversation with Laura Delimpio. There's a sense in which works of art as wholes, right, so regardless of the specific characters and the specific acts represented in them, can manifest certain attitudes. So, for instance, uh, you might think that Tolstoy uh, manifests compassion towards Anna Karenina. In fact, uh, according to an anecdote, um, he was much harsher, and in writing the novel, he came to be much more sympathetic towards her. And you might think that this kind of compassion uh, displays a, a broader sort of attitude of compassion uh, or even kindness, and, and that these are virtues. And if you think that these are virtues, and if you're sensitive to these traits, then I think we can speak of an, of, of, you know, of an artwork, in this case, manifesting moral virtues through the attitudes of its creator. Or if you're uncomfortable with speaking about the attitudes of actual artists manifesting works of art, partly because uh, we never know, you know, it might just be that Tolstoy is deceiving us all along and he feels no compassion for Anna. Instead, uh, feigns these attitudes, then it's fine because the artwork can still manifest um, what we would call the attitudes of a manifested artist. So the artist, as they appear through reconstructing the artwork in terms of choices that result in the end product. Um, and that's a kind of general enough view to incorporate lots of different kinds of artworks. I think even music, painting, uh, literature, poetry might be slightly harder with buildings. Um, 
Yuriko Saito has this really interesting argument about how buildings can be evaluated morally. And I think if anything can be evaluated morally, then, then it can also be evaluated in light of the moral beauty view as well. Uh, whereby she, she thinks that um, depending on how, for instance, accessible they are to a diverse range of people with diverse needs, being sustainable, all these things manifest certain attitudes. Uh, the example of accessibility is particularly good because it, the, I think it manifests an attitude of respect to the people who are going to interact with this building and to the extent that you can see the building in light of that attitude of respect then I think uh, even a building can be uh, beautiful in virtue of uh, morally relevant traits. Yeah, I agree with you. I think a good example of the opposite is some of the architecture that has started to pop up around cities that is designed to discourage homeless people from using them. And so this unfriendly, unsociable attitude is manifest through things like um, ridges on benches or handles where they can't lie down. And so spaces that might otherwise be used to shelter those who are particularly vulnerable cannot be used in this way. But what strikes me then is that surely I'm not blaming the building. Surely I'm not blaming the seat. Um, I'm blaming the creator. So in aesthetics, one of the views that is very controversial is of how whether we should protect and separate the artists from their artwork. In this case, well, if it's the local council planning committee who wants to move homeless people along, I'm saying, well, they're being lacking in compassion in this kind of architecture here, even though on the moral beauty view, it seems, it seems as if the building is ugly because of that. But I'm suddenly drawing back in that creator, am I not? Well, as I said, um, that's a good point, and, and that's a really good example as well. Um, to the extent that these buildings are created with that function, then they do seem to manifest a, a kind of uh, cruelty, and to that extent, to be aesthetically defective. Now, the link between the work, uh, or the building in this case, and the people behind it is, and more generally, the link between the artwork and their creators is a very tricky one. Um, in the case of the building, there might be a more kind of straightforward link that we can postulate because, as you put it, um, you know, the council has a say over what gets built. Often the council gives advice on architects and engineers and so on about how this is expected to be and expected to work. And so, yeah, you can't blame a building as such. And the moral beauty view is not really just about blame. I mean, you don't blame an artwork for being immoral. You, you do blame uh, kind of indirectly the artist if you're quite confident that the artist did intentionally, you know, wish to express. But a lot of the time we're not confident about these things. So, you know, if you want to protest about a building, you can cite its unsightliness, if you like, but you're going to blame the people who are responsible for erecting it in the first place or putting it there. But I think there's more to be said because at times the artist might be completely unaware that a building or, well, they might be unaware that an artwork is going to be interpreted in a given way and they might have no intention whatsoever. You know, they might not mean any harm at all by an artwork. So it gets tricky, which is why you have this idea of the manifested artist, which kind of uh, makes 
all these kinds of judgments uh, sensitive uh, or relative to, if you like, our interpretations. But sometimes, and this is something that's becoming more popular now, I think, in light of the kinds of debates about uh, note platforming, debates about sculptures uh, and their removal and so on, in light of these debates and, and a lot of other issues like you know, the presidency of Trump and other kinds of things that have happened in recent years, there is more interest in philosophy very recently about how we should be thinking about the artists and their role and ethical attitudes that they express and their relation to their work. But I think I've not yet made up my mind, but one way in which an artist's real life and an artist's actual attitude or a builder's actual attitude or an architect's actual attitudes can be relevant is if there are links between, for instance, their real life uh, virtue or vice, and the kinds of things that we view in their works. Uh, so suppose that, so we stick to building, suppose that the artist is a kind of relentless capitalist who cares only about profits and thinks that money is everything and people's lives don't matter and all that matters is that people have money, get it good and get to be protected and oversee the hoi polloi, if you like. So that architect might design, and we know this um, because they've given lots of interviews and so on, and they designed this kind of absolutely massive eyesore in the middle of a city, too tall, not in harmony with its surroundings, but houses all of these kind of, you know, hardcore capitalists, uh, rich people, protects them from, you know, the protesters and so on, then you can start thinking, well, yeah, we know this person has this attitude. We can see how the building kind of echoes these views and how it serves certain functions that are very much in line. And then then there are links between, you know, assessing the artwork and uh, or the building in this case and kind of the the architect or designer themselves. And there are different ways this could go. Our responses might be even stronger because we're aware of the connection to real life. I mean, in general, our reactions to buildings might be stronger because they, they do play a role in our real life, whereas you might think a film you can forget in a couple of days, depending how bad its transgressions are. But, you know, the, the knowledge that the, the person who designed it has these views um, can sort of feed in and enhance or strengthen any attitudes, positive or negative, that we might have had, you know, had we not had the knowledge uh, that this person also uh, holds these attitudes. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the narrative artworks, because as you said, we've got some characters that can be fairly similar to real life characters, but they are fictional and we don't necessarily know the attitude of the artist, particularly if we're talking about a film or a television series where you have multiple artists contributing to the creation of these works. Um, but one of the things that is very, very popular these days is the sort of anti-hero or an unsympathetic character. And we love watching characters that aren't good. I mean, a character that is good and, and does everything right is, is surely quite boring to watch. So what's going on here? So we're saying that if they are displaying the vices to that extent, they are ugly, yet there's something rather intriguing, alluring, attractive, and certainly even seductive about some of these characters. 
Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. In fact, uh, um, Anne Eaton has argued that there is a kind of character called a rough hero, and uh, the rough hero is defined precisely as a, as a character who is immoral and whom uh, we are supposed to, as the audience, recognize. We're supposed to recognize them as immoral, and yet uh, they're deeply attractive. Now, that's not necessarily a problem for the moral beauty view. So one way to think about it is, yeah, um, someone can have both positive and negative traits, right? Uh, and some of their traits might be uh, attractive and some of their traits might be not so attractive. Uh, so you might think that a character who is um, morally bad is attractive, but their attractiveness stems from something else. Perhaps they're particularly intelligent, perhaps they're particularly good looking, uh, or perhaps they're particularly skillful at what they do, and we really kind of take a liking to them because of these things, or we find what they do particularly uh, suspenseful, right? So, for instance, you've got um, Walter White and uh, Jesse Pinkman in uh, Breaking Bad, uh, cooking methamphetamine, and, uh, you know, you kind of get caught up in, uh, you know, are they going to get caught? Are they going to, what's going to happen? So this is just a classic case of suspense. But whether we, lo we like these characters, whether we find them attractive is tricky, right? Um, it seems that in a show like Breaking Bad, uh, we increasingly dislike Walter White in particular. The more cruel he's revealed to be, uh, the more ruthless, uh, the less we like him. But there are, of course, other characters. So, for instance, Anne Eaton mentions people like Humbert Humbert and Lolita, or Tony Soprano, perhaps, the sort of chief mafioso in The Sopranos. Milton Satan, um, Bonnie Milton's, and Clyde. Indeed, yes, there are, there are a few, yeah. So the question then, and I think Eaton's argument um, sort of hangs on this, is whether or not what is attractive about these characters is their immorality. And this, I think, is where the real crux, if you like, of the issue lies. Now, according to Eaton, we are supposed to be attracted to these characters partly at least because they are immoral. I must confess that I find that very difficult to sort of understand and digest as a view. And my initial reaction tends to be that, you know, in these cases what's happening, well, so the one thing that we might think is quite plausible is that immorality can be particularly interesting, right? Most of us haven't met people like Milton Satan. Uh, I mean, Milton Satan is Satan, so highly unlikely to meet Satan anytime soon, uh, hopefully. But, uh, you know, you, people like Humbert Humbert, uh, even if we knew them, we, we wouldn't really know of their transgressions or they'd probably be in jail. You know, most of us don't know mafiosi and we don't know meth cooks, right? So, so there's something really interesting. There's another world there for us and we're curious. Now, curiosity is a very deeply ingrained human emotion and we're curious about these um, people, we're curious about their traits, we're curious how they pull these things off, we're curious how they're psychologically possible for these people to actually exist, even in fiction, right? You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and this week, Laura Delimpio is talking with Panos Paris from the School of English Communication and Philosophy at Cardiff University in Wales. It's a conversation about moral beauty, moral ugliness, and how we might understand the attraction of moral evil in various forms of art. 
this is an interesting idea. When, when we go back to our fictional characters, let's say, we've got some philosophers like David Hume, uh, even Noel Carroll, who will say that we actually can't sympathise with an unsympathetic character. And if we're being asked to, then that moral failing is also an aesthetic failing. It's a formal flaw because we can't take up that position of being sympathetic to, say, for instance, a very racist character, but we might be asked to. And so this seems to align the idea that the aesthetic and the ethical or the moral judgments are starting to come together. But what are we um, suggesting here is that there might be other features that are we could be sympathetic to other than a moral failing. Or if we are sympathetic, perhaps our moral compass is skewed. What do you think about, you know, the, these sort of less sympathetic characters? These, I mean, I don't know if all the rough heroes are example of these. They're so popular. So are we being able to sympathetically engage with their stories? Even if they are vicious, even if we've never had any experiences like this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this, in fact, um, what you were just describing is another part of the argument by Anne Eaton for immoralism, right? The idea is that there is an aesthetic achievement in getting us to sympathize with these uh, people because we are, you know, we're, we're inclined to not sympathize with particularly bad people. And so there's a lot of skill going into those works. We normally would not um, sympathize with these people. And as Hume puts it, we ought to not sympathize with these people. But of course, uh, we shouldn't see this as an extreme claim, right? There might be a reason to sympathize uh, for the sake of engaging with the story, and that's perfectly okay, provided we have some comfort and security in knowing that this is part of an exploratory project, right? We're trying to understand the character. We're not sympathizing in order to glorify morality. I think none of these programs do that, even some of them, even if some of them are sort of at times flirting with that idea. Um, so I think we can allow ourselves to sort of sympathize with morally bad characters, provided that the overall perspective is not uh, an immoral one. Now, when it comes to these characters, these sort of immoral rough heroes, um, the real issue is um, to what extent sort of the artwork asks us to, to sort of glorify them, or if, or if they're used, for instance, uh, for some other purpose. So the artwork might invite us to side with them, to like them, to kind of sympathize with them. But the question is why? Why does the artwork, or the artist indeed who created the artwork, uh, we might ask, do this? And I think that in the medium where these characters have become the most successful, uh, which is the medium of television, in fact, the, the format of television series in particular, uh, there's something special which has to do with the duration and the uh, episodic structure of TV series that allows for these characters not just to be liked and sympathised with a lot more than in other media, but also can have certain effects, certain... Um, cognitive effects even, certain educational effects, you might think, that equivalent characters will not necessarily provide us with in other artworks, in other art forms. Um, you know, TV series can explore these characters to a greater depth 
and in a very different way than, uh, for instance, you know, feature length films can. And to that extent, you know, the explanation or, or at least their attraction becomes a lot easier to explain, right? The more you sit with someone, the more you see them as a human being, it's very difficult once we, we fully experience someone as a human being who has, you know, merits and flaws and everything and who's rounded, it's very difficult for us to just dislike them or give up on them altogether. And, and of course, we do have people with dislike. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. Uh, but of course, uh, the rough heroes are not just any people. They're particularly intelligent. They're particularly, as I mentioned earlier, they're particularly sometimes physically attractive, sometimes funny, sometimes this. So they have good features. And add to this a long time for these features to develop and for us to be able to see them in light of them. Add to that a lot of time, which in a sense kind of builds a relationship between ourselves and these characters and it's not very difficult to see why these characters, despite, and this is the key word, I think, rather than in virtue of, um, their immorality uh, can be attractive. And you and I are co-editing with Aidan Thompson a book that's forthcoming with Routledge later this year called Educating Character Through the Arts. And we're particularly interested in this educational aspect of how we're learning from artworks and particularly what kinds of character traits we might habituate and get used to seeing and then value and maybe reinforce in our own lives as a result. And we can imagine now the sceptic, the cynic sort of worrying about these rough heroes. They're saying, well, actually, yes, there, there might be other things that we're actually interested in or praising here, but we've got an unethical character that we're watching a lot of, feeling very sympathetic to. Um, you give some great exam examples of this. There's Piper from Orange is the New Black, Tony Soprano from The Sopranos, Walter White from Breaking Bad. Isn't the worry, they would say, that we're going to learn bad habits from these unethical people? Yeah, sure. I mean, th this is a familiar worry, I think. And, you know, it's not impossible, for instance, to uh, watch a series like Breaking Bad and decide to emulate Walter and Jesse. You know, that's not an inconceivable scenario. But, of course, this could happen by watching the news, right? Um, so you could see that, you know, the story of a murder and decide to uh, commit the same crimes yourselves if you're if you're inclined that way. So, so that doesn't seem to be a particularly special worry for rough heroes. But of course, and there's also you know the possibility um, which uh, the great uh, critic Emily Nussbaum uh, sort of points out. She identifies this kind of bad fan uh, who watches these series especially or only to get kicks out of the immorality, right, and the violence and all of that. And she th she basically says, uh, quite rightly, I think, that these people are watching these programs wrong, which I guess raises the question, which I try to answer in the article in our edited volume that we just mentioned, um, what should we be getting out of these programs if, they're, if we're watching them right, right? If we're not bad fans, if we are attentive, uh, sensitive viewers. And there I think these programs give us a richer, uh, more nuanced and subtle understanding of human character and virtues and vices, as well as a better understanding of our own propensity 
to, you know, like or dislike characters and to morally judge them in particular ways. And in doing so, it enriches both our understanding of character traits, virtues, vices, uh, their intentions that go with them, the kind of life experiences, the systemic structures that might go into uh, shaping them, and also gives us a richer understanding of our own structure of moral judgment, how easily we go about, you know, calling people dishonest or, you know, sympathizing with people and letting that kind of lead us into viewing them as better than they are or disliking them and sort of judging them more harshly morally um, than we would have otherwise. So how do television series get to that? Well, I think these works also adopt what I've called an elenchic narrative structure, which term is not particularly helpful, I guess, but I borrowed it from the kind of term that philosophers use to describe uh, the Socratic method, which is a a method of questioning, right? So Socrates went around ancient Athens questioning people on their views, asking them what is justice, and then sort of uh, whatever answer they gave him, he would probe that and he would question that and he would get them to see that they're wrong and get them to revise their attitudes. And I think a lot of television series, particularly the best ones that deal with these kinds of rough heroes, um, have a similar structure in that they get us to sympathize with them and then to see how our sympathy led us morally astray, right? It led us to side with characters who are capable of things that we weren't expecting of them just because we've, be- we've grown so lenient towards them. But they do the other, the, the kind of uh, reverse as well. So they get us to dislike certain characters only to then reveal the humanity of these characters to us and get us to see our mistake of our initial judgment. So they get us to see both how characters can be very complex and they, you know, they, they do that by developing these characters over lengthy series through presenting us their relationships with other characters who themselves have inner lives and complex stories and also by reflecting on our own responses to these characters by sort of having a a dialogical, if you like, relationship with these programs, which, by the way, also have an extra element in addition to their length and this elenchic structure, this kind of questioning structure, which constantly gets us to undermine our expectations and responses to the characters we're engaging with. There's another thing in that because we're on television and because these series go go on for so long, They have a kind of uh, narrative malleability uh, in that the makers of these programs can tailor them to audience uptake. So if it looks like the audience is kind of glorifying the criminal too much, they can underplay that. They can, they can, well, they can, they can sort of undermine. They can, um, the creators of these programs can play with audience responses to uh, shape their thinking and their reactions to the works and thereby, I think, enlighten them uh, cognitively and morally uh, by uh, giving them a richer understanding of, of both uh, their own moral judgment and also of uh, character and their traits. Panos Paris, he's a lecturer in the School of English Communication and Philosophy at Cardiff University in Wales, and he was speaking there with Laura Delimpio, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy of Education at the University of Birmingham. And as Laura mentioned, she and Panos Paris and Aidan Thompson, who's also at the University of Birmingham, they are currently co-editing a book that's going to be coming out later this year, Educating Character Through the Arts. Keep an eye out for that one. It sounds like it's going to be well worth a read. 
And that's it from the Philosopher's Zone this week. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks so much for your company and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.